Don't waste your life. In his book by that very title, pastor and theologian John Piper, who happens to be in our denomination, Converge, says this, quote, I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider this story from the February 1998 Reader's Digest. A couple took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? That is a tragedy. God created us to live with a single passion, to joyfully display his supreme excellence in all the spheres of life. The wasted life is the life without this passion. God calls us to pray and think and dream and plan and work, not to be made much of, but to make much of him in every part of our lives, end quote. Don't waste your life. There is something much bigger and way more exhilarating to live for, to make much of Jesus in every sphere of life. That's what it means to truly live, to spend your life making much of Jesus. Our big idea today also comes from John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life, in which he says, and this is our big idea, if you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, and your joy will be full. That's what we'll see in Nehemiah chapter 2 today. So turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 20 today. Nehemiah chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad, when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed? By fire. Do you remember where we left off, left off last week in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 11? Said, now I was cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. That was his job. If you met Nehemiah at some convention and you traded business cards, his would have simply said, Nehemiah, cupbearer. Now, I know it doesn't sound like an exciting job, but it actually was. Not only was it exciting, it was a risky job to be the cupbearer. Every single day at your job, death was a possibility several times a day. 
And that's why the cupbearer was a very important job. The cupbearer would be in charge of tasting any food or drink before it passed the lips of the king. Now, don't get the wrong impression. This wasn't, wasn't merely a taste-testing job. It wasn't like Nehemiah would sample the wine and then decline or approve of it based on his knowledge of King Artaxerxes' palate and preferences. This job was dangerous. It was risky. Nehemiah was in charge of drinking anything before it passed the lips of King Artaxerxes. And the reason he did that, his job was to find out if the wine or anything the king drank was poisoned. Many people would have loved to take out the king. What a better way to take him out than by poisoning him so that then maybe you could become king. So the cupbearer was a very important and risky job, a very dangerous job. But a cupbearer wouldn't actually drink out of the same glass or goblet as the king because no king wants floaties in his drink, correct? The Greek historian Xenophon describes what the cupbearer did. He says, now, it is a well-known fact that the king's cupbearers, when they proffer the cup, draw off some of it with the ladle, pour it into their left hand, and swallow it down, so that if they should put poison in, they may not profit by it. So the cupbearer would take the ladle, dip it into the wine bucket, pour some into his hands, take a drink, and wait, and wait, and wait. And if he did not croak and die instantly, then the king knew, hey, I can drink my wine today. So this was Nehemiah's job. It doesn't sound exciting on the surface, just dipping a ladle into a bucket, wine into your hands, and taking a sip. It doesn't sound exciting on the surface, but it was. Because it was a very dangerous and a very risky job. Because every single day, several times a day, Nehemiah could have died. That means then that every day that Nehemiah left for work, he really kissed his wife goodbye. Because he might not come home that night. So Nehemiah is there in the presence of King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And he does what he has done a million times. He tries the wine. He doesn't croak. And then he gives it to the king. And as he gives the wine to the king, King Artaxerxes notices that Nehemiah is sad. It may have even gone against cupbearer etiquette to show any sadness in the presence of the king. Because nobody wants a Debbie Downer around them, right? So it may have even gone against cupbearer etiquette to be sad in the king's presence. You're always supposed to be full of joy. Nehemiah had never been sad in the presence of the king, he says. So the king asked him, what's going on? You're not sick, so what is it? Why are you sad? Are you sad because that horse didn't win the triple crown yesterday? Why are you sad, Nehemiah? Some of you are sad about that. I get it. I wanted the horse to win too. If you had it DVR'd and you're just now finding out, sorry. (laughs) That's just the world we live in. Understand what's happening here. Even though the king asked Nehemiah what was wrong, it was still a risky endeavor to tell him why. Nehemiah likely is breaking etiquette. In fact, he may be challenging. He is challenging the king's previous decree. Remember back in Ezra 4, King Artaxerxes made a decree, put a law in place that the Israelites had to stop rebuilding the temple and stop rebuilding the city walls of Jerusalem. And now Nehemiah is actually going to ask that king for permission to leave his job, to return home, 
and to do what the king said the Israelites couldn't do. All of this is likely swirling around in Nehemiah's head, and that's why in verse 2, Nehemiah says that he was very much afraid. Now, it is true that Nehemiah did simply refer to King Artaxerxes in verse 11 of chapter 1 as this man. He knows that he is just a mere mortal when compared with Yahweh, the great and awesome, the great and fearful God. So compared with Yahweh... Artaxerxes knows that King, uh, I mean, Nehemiah knows that King Artaxerxes is just this man. But now that Nehemiah stood in front of the king and the king asked him what was wrong, now that he was standing in the presence of the most powerful man in the known world at that time, Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. The fear was there as he approached Artaxerxes. Nehemiah knew, I might get my head chopped off right now. This was a risky endeavor. So how does a frightened man who, one, is breaking cupbearer etiquette by being sad in the king's presence, and secondly, about to ask a king for permission to go against his own decree, how does this man approach the king? What does he say? Look at verse 3. Let the king live forever. If you're in Nehemiah's shoes, starting your request off with long live the king is not a bad idea. Starting your request off with Artaxerxes is the man is not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea to grease up the king before you ask him for a favor. Now, this is not a prescriptive passage for you tomorrow if you want a raise from your boss Don't go there. Don't grease up your boss and then ask him for a raise. Get a raise because you work hard. It's not a prescriptive passage. But Nehemiah shows honor to the king when he says this. And then Nehemiah tells the king why he is sad. Jerusalem, the city of God, lies in ruins. And Artaxerxes, being the bright lad that he is, picks up on what Nehemiah is doing and he asks him, What are you requesting? Watch what Nehemiah does here. Look at verse 4. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. This little verse is very instructive for us. Notice first that Nehemiah is about to address, address the king, little k, lowercase k. But before he does that, he addresses the king, capital K, king of heaven. Not a bad plan. The king asks Nehemiah what he wants, and Nehemiah squeezes in this quickie prayer, a real fast, Lord, help me, grant me favor kind of prayer. And Nehemiah does that a lot in his book. But don't forget that Nehemiah has also been praying for four months about this. One commentator said this, The extended prayers of the previous four months were now followed by the shortest of holy telegrams. I love that. A holy telegram. Nehemiah has backed up this holy telegram prayer with four months of intense prayer and planning. And it's very instructive for us, Grace. Surely this is what Paul means when he says pray without ceasing in Colossians 4.2. You need both prolonged periods of prayer and these holy telegram prayers, these quickie prayers, these popcorn prayers that just pop up real quick. You can't live without one or the other. And what does Nehemiah ask for? 
How does Artaxerxes respond to his request? Look at verse 5. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So Nehemiah lays it all out. I want to go rebuild my father's city, the city of Jerusalem, the city of God. I will be gone this amount of time. I need letters backing me up. I need a toll tag to get me through all the toll booths. And I need a gift card to Home Depot. That's what Nehemiah requested. But notice how closely related prayer and planning are. Nehemiah prayed And he planned for four months. His list didn't come out of nowhere. See, some people only plan. Some people only pray. You need both. Nehemiah's four months of prayer and planning then come out. I want to leave of absence for this long. I need a toll tag. I need letters saying that you got my back. And I need a gift card to Home Depot for supplies. And I want you to pay for it all even build me a new house crazy risky maybe nehemiah the cupbearer taste tested a little too much wine that day nehemiah maybe had one handful of wine too many that day because this is crazy Nehemiah, you're going to ask all of this from a pagan king who already made a law that Jerusalem could not be rebuilt. You're going to ask for vacation time and for the king to fit the bill and even build you a new house? Nehemiah, I think it's the wine that's talking. Well, we know it wasn't the wine that's talking. So what makes someone do something so risky? What makes someone risk their very life? The answer, Nehemiah is committed to the kingdom of God. His purpose for going back to Jerusalem is found in verse 5. That I may rebuild it. Nehemiah knows That the city of God needs rebuilding so that Yahweh's fame and Yahweh's name and character and word and law will spread to the nations. Nehemiah knows that true happiness for the people of God only comes through worshiping the Lord as their supreme treasure in this life. So he wants to rebuild the walls surrounding Jerusalem so that Israel can be the city of God. Nehemiah is telling us, if you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, and your joy will be full. Nehemiah risked his life by approaching the king with a sad face. He risked his life by requesting such an outrageous request. And he backed it all up with months of planning and prayer and a last-minute prayer to boot. 
he maybe even did it with some wisdom because he went out of the way to say the queen was sitting next to the king. Listen, if you ask a guy for something and his wife is there, she'll probably be a little more favorable, right? So maybe he had some wisdom in waiting for the, the, the queen to be there. I don't know. But verse 9 tells us that King Artaxerxes granted all that Nehemiah asked for, and it gives us the reason. For the good hand of my God was upon me. We've seen this phrase several times in the book of Ezra. It occurs several times in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is succeeding. Israel is succeeding because the good hand of God was upon them. It shows us that there is a definite connection here between God's hand being upon his people and their willingness to pray. Think about that. Now let me say it again. There is a definite connection between God's hand being on his people, being on the church, and their willingness to pray. There is a definite connection between God's hand being on his people and their willingness to take risks for the kingdom. There is a definite connection between God's hand being on his people and their willingness to live for the kingdom of God. There is a definite connection between God's hand being on his people and their willingness to say, their willingness to believe, their willingness to live like their mission in life is to ignite a passion in every person to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything. That's our mission here at Grace. That's what we're about as a church, living gladly to make others glad in God. So are you ready to get on mission with us as a church to live gladly to make others glad in God? If you are, let me warn you, your life will be hard. Your risks will be high, but your joy will be full. I recalled several weeks ago that I asked a cashier one day if they'd like to come to Grace and come to church. And I went through my journal yesterday and I'd written about it in there and was reminded of it. And I asked this young man, hey, would you like to go to church? And he looked at me and he said, (laughs) and then he handed me my receipt That young man is attending grace now. Your risks will be high. Your life will be hard when you live for the kingdom of God, but your joy will be full. Nehemiah knew this, and that's why he's not done taking risks. He's on the highway to the danger zone, going to take a ride into the danger zone. He's got Kenny Loggins from the Top Gun soundtrack blaring from his iPod. He travels 900 plus miles to Jerusalem from Persia, and he kept danger zone on repeat to remind himself that living life in the kingdom is about taking risks, working hard so that other people Find their joy in Jesus. Look at verses 9 through 10. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. 
So Nehemiah takes off from Persia, and unlike Ezra in Ezra chapter 8, Nehemiah gets the royal escort. This was an important aspect of his trip. Nehemiah needed this royal escort. Why? Why did Nehemiah need the royal escort from King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, as he traveled and showed up in Jerusalem? It wasn't for the protection per se. It was so that Nehemiah would arrive in style. Why did Nehemiah need a Persian posse when he arrived in Jerusalem? So that when Nehemiah rolled up in his limo and those who wanted to oppose him, they would realize he has the backing of King Artaxerxes. And this is probably why Sanballat and Tobiah don't use force to stop Nehemiah. They can't force Nehemiah to stop the rebuilding campaign. He's got royal approval. King Artaxerxes has his back. But notice the reason here why Sanballat and Tobiah are ticked off. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. They are mad because Nehemiah is there to work for the good of God's people. They are mad because Nehemiah is there to work for the progress and joy of the faith. As Paul says in Philippians 1.24, for those who are in Jerusalem. Nehemiah's trip on the highway to the danger zone is a reminder that as the church, as the people of God, as the city of God, we need to remember that if you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, and your joy will be full. Nehemiah is seeking to help others find their joy in God, and he's risking his life to do so. But verses 9 through 10 are not just another paragraph in the Bible. The animosity and the hatred that Sanballat and Tobiah feel toward Nehemiah for seeking the welfare and the good of the city of God is none other than evidence that the serpent of Genesis chapter 3 is trying to stop the great redeemer, Jesus Christ, from coming. What did God say to Satan after Adam and Eve sinned? Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Scholars refer to this as the proto-evangelium, which means first gospel. It's not just talking about mankind hating snakes. Obviously, there's something bigger happening here. This is the first gospel. This is the good news that God's people will triumph over the world, over the seed of the serpent. Humanity is divided up into two communities, the redeemed, those who love God, those who by faith are trusting in the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and the reprobate, those who love the world, those who follow the prince of this world, Satan himself. The people of God triumph over Satan because Jesus, our Redeemer, has defeated him. He crushed Satan under his feet through his life, death, and resurrection. 
You've got to understand that that's what's happening here in verses 9 through 10. When you read the opposition of Sanballat and Tobiah, it is clear evidence that Satan, the great serpent in Genesis chapter 3, is trying to stop Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, from coming to carry out the Father's work of crushing the serpent and redeeming his elect people. So this is a highly charged theological passage here. Satan wants to keep Jesus, the promised redeemer of Genesis 3, from coming to the earth because he knows that his doom is sure. See, there is more going on in this passage and in Ezra, Nehemiah, than meets the eye. Sanballat and Tobiah are proof. They are the seed. They are the offspring of the serpent trying to stop Jesus, the redeemer, from coming. So we should not be startled by opposition when we seek to be the city of God. Satan will always oppose the church and he does it not only through the spiritual world, through demons, but also through people. History is full of satanic opposition to the gospel. And here's just one short example of thousands, perhaps millions. George Whitfield encountered this as he preached throughout England and America in the first great awakening. Whitfield would preach publicly outside, oftentimes to thousands at a time, and he faced extreme animosity. Sometimes people would blow trumpets while he preached just to uh, disrupt him. Sometimes people would yell cuss words at him to get him to stop. People in the crowds would be attacked by people. Sometimes they would have their clothes ripped off by people. There are reports that some people were even raped as he preached because they tried to stop him. All was done in an attempt to make George Whitfield stop preaching the gospel. He was clubbed. He had rocks thrown at him. And one time, a man even climbed a tree above him as he was preaching, and Whitfield was urinated on. And here's a sample from Whitfield's journal. I was honored today. I was honored today with having a few stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cat thrown at me. All of this was nothing less than the hiss of Satan, that ancient serpent, Revelation 20, verse 2. All of this is just one example that there will always be opposition to the gospel. And disciples will always be called to risk their lives for the gospel and for the joy of people. If you step out of your comfort zone and start sharing the gospel with people, you might get hit with a few rocks or dirt or rotten eggs or maybe even pieces of dead cat. If you step out for the gospel, you might get urinated on. If you get vocal about the gospel, the seed of the serpent will show up and start hissing. If you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, and your joy will be full. Being hit by pieces of dead cat didn't stop George Whitfield 
And a few toadies like Tobiah and Sanballat didn't stop Nehemiah. Look at verse 11. So when I went to Jerusalem and was there three days, and then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And there went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So Nehemiah embarks on this investigation under cover of darkness with a few men and just his ride, which was probably a donkey. He went out by night to the dragon spring, he says, which could be translated as well of the serpents or well of the dragons. I like well of the serpents, hence the sermon title. And Nehemiah went to the dung gate, which was basically the city dump where everybody's garbage went. And then Nehemiah visited several areas of the city wall that were in despair. But why did he go at night? And why keep it a secret and not tell the leaders? Two reasons. One, probably because Nehemiah knew that he needed to see the city walls firsthand if he was going to start the rebuilding project. If there were objections to his rebuilding, then Nehemiah needed proof and data that the walls indeed were ruined. He needed to see it firsthand so that he could say, Hey, I've seen the sheep gate. It looks bad. I had to do that. You know, Paul tells the Corinthians, I will gladly be made a fool if you, if you turn back to Christ. I don't care to embarrass myself. If it makes you stay awake, it makes you hear God's word, so I will gladly make myself a fool for you. So let me say that again. I've seen the sheep gate and it looks bad. It's trashed. I've been to the dung gate and it looks and smells like, well, dung. Second reason, he had to keep it a secret because some of the Israelites may have had close ties with the Gentiles and they may have leaked the info to them. But in spite of all the precautions Nehemiah took, what drove Nehemiah is found in verse 11. What my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Nehemiah wasn't fascinated with home improvement or Bob the Builder. He wasn't trying to land a show on HGTV or the Do-It-Yourself Network. Nehemiah's motivation came from God. God had put the desire in his heart. Nehemiah's heart said, If you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard, your risks will be high, and your joy will be full. The only way that you will become so God-centered and passionate about God's glory and working for the kingdom of God and working to help others find their joy in God is if God himself does that work in your own heart. You don't have that desire? Do you want that desire? You have to plead like the psalmist in Psalm 86, 11, Unite my heart to fear your name. You have to plead like the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 112. Incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Only God can draw you 
into more of God. Only God can draw you into more of God. Why? Because the church, Christians, disciples, we are not typically known for being risk takers, are we? We don't normally gravitate to risk, especially as Americans. We want and we crave safety and security, which is why we need to hear what Alan Hirsch says. I do not think Christians are very risk averse. I do think that Christians are very risk averse. Churches are very, very risk averse. They are not places that you normally associate with adventure, risk, or creativity. Because if you want to be creative, you have to risk failure. If you want to achieve something beyond the status quo, you have to get out of the status quo, which means you're not going to make everyone happy. But the problem is without that, you never go anywhere. And so you're stuck in the stifling status quo. And that is what many churches are stuck in because we've created this safety awareness, this middle class obsession with safety and security. I'm afraid that will kill us in the end. A little bit of danger is good for us. Risk doesn't always have to be death-defying. Doing a job that pushes us out of our comfort zones is very good for us. Words that we need to hear. Well, lest you think this story is over, Nehemiah's God-glorifying, risk-taking, happiness-producing adventure continues. Look at verse 17. And then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. See, Nehemiah immediately identifies himself with the people of God, with the kingdom of God. He says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And they said, we're in. Oh, how beautiful it is when church leaders and pastors and elders give a charge to a congregation and they say, we're in. I'm not gonna ask any questions. I'm in. I'm sold out to Jesus. I'm behind the vision of this church. I'm in. That's what's happening here. Nehemiah gives the charge and they say, we will rise up and build. Let's go. I've got three hammers. Nehemiah has had it at this point. No more derision or disgrace or mockery for the people of God. And he motivates the people by pointing out Yahweh's goodness in verse 18. He says, the hand of the Lord has been upon me. And the proof of that is that King Artaxerxes is the one who's fitting the entire bill. Nehemiah is saying to Israel, look, Yahweh has been at work. His hand has been on my life. I asked this crazy, outrageous, out-of-this-world request of a pagan king that went contrary to his previous decree, and he gave me what I wanted. 
I rolled into Jerusalem in a limo with all this fanfare. I have tons of gift cards to Home Depot to buy lumber and tools. And a pagan king says that he's got our backs. What are we waiting for? This too is instructive for us, Grace. Nehemiah does not guilt them into ministry and service. He highlights the fact that God has been working. And then he says, let's join him. We'd be fools not to. God is moving and doing things in our city, Israel. Let's join his cause. We'd be fools not to. And verse 18 tells us how they responded. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But just because God is at work and his people respond to his work does not mean that there will be no opposition or hardships. The seed of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent, will show up and start hissing. As soon as the people of God get busy trying to rebuild the city of God, here comes Sanballat and Tobiah, along with a new friend, Geshem. I like to refer to them as the three stooges. And if they are the three stooges, then Geshem has to be curly because Geshem's name means bulky or chunky. So Geshem has to be curly of the bunch. So the three stooges, the seed of the serpent, start jeering and hissing and pestering the Israelites as they are working. Why are you doing this? Are you actually going to rebel against the king? If you don't stop working, then Chunky is going to sit on you. And so the three stooges start hissing and hammering the Israelites with questions designed to get them to quit. But notice how the people of God respond in verse 20. The God of heaven will make us prosper. They're committed to God's mission of being the city of God. They're trusting that God will make them prosper. And that's the only way that we will ever risk our lives. We must remember that God will make us prosper as a church in his time, in his ways, for his glory, for his kingdom. But in the end, we know the gospel will triumph, so we are freed to lose everything. Because in the end, God wins. Jesus crushed the head of Satan, that ancient hissing serpent, and he did that at the cross. John Piper says, this is the promise that empowers us to take risks for the sake of Christ. It is not the impulse of heroism or the lust for adventure or the courage of self-reliance or the need to earn God's favor. It is simple trust in Christ. That in him, God will do everything necessary so that we can enjoy making much of him forever. Every good poised to bless us and every evil arrayed against us will in the end help us boast only in the cross, magnify Christ, and glorify our creator. Faith in these promises frees us to risk and to find in our own experience that it is better to lose our life than to waste it. Jesus is moving in this church and in this city. He is busy building his church because he said he would do that. This is his church. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's his church 
He cares more about this church than any of us does. He has more interest vested here than any of us. It's his church. He's busy building his church, extending his kingdom in this world and in this city. He is passionate and relentless about spreading his fame. Will you join him? Will you join Jesus on this passionate adventure of his to spread the worth of his name, to make much of him in your homes and in your neighborhoods and in your workplaces and in the grocery store you go to, in the coffee shop you go to. Will you join Jesus? He is relentlessly pursuing this. He is passionate about it. Will you join him? You'd be foolish not to. We have an opportunity to make a difference in our city for the glory of Jesus, for the kingdom of God, and for the greatest cause of all, God's glory. Jesus has overcome. And so we will overcome. We'd be fools to sit back and do nothing. So will you join us on our mission to be busy making disciple-making disciples? Will you join us on our mission to ignite a passion in every person, to glorify and enjoy God everywhere and in everything? Will you join us on our mission to ignite a passion, the passion to spread the worth of Jesus' name? Will, Will you unite with us Join us in igniting a passion in every person, every person here, every person that comes through those doors, every person in every class, every person in your home, every person in your neighborhood, every person in your workplace. To ignite in every person a passion to glorify Jesus, to enjoy Jesus and his goodness everywhere and in everything. If you do, If you live gladly to make others glad in God, your life will be hard. Your risks will be high. But your joy will be full. There's no better way to live, Grace. Don't waste your life. Let's pray. Father, as we see what Nehemiah is doing here, he's obviously a type and a picture of your son Jesus who came to crush the head of the serpent to redeem his elect people. God, would you do that work in our heart? You did the work in Nehemiah's heart. You did the work in Israel's heart to rise up and build. Would you do the work in our hearts here at Grace? to take risks, to work hard, to make much of Jesus everywhere we go and in everything we do, it's not gonna happen unless you do that work in our hearts. So we ask you to do that, that we would make a difference in our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, that we'd make a difference in this city for your glory. That's why we do it, God. We want to make much of your son. If you don't stir our hearts, we'll never do it. Help us, we ask, for your glory and for the joy 
of all peoples. In Jesus' name, amen.